Hi, Nate. Hey, Tom. A long time ago, I was in Burma. My friends and I were working for the local government. And they were, uh, we were all trying to buy the loyalty of tribal leaders by bribing them with API access. Uh, but their APIs were being raided in a forest north of Rangoon by a chatbot. So we went looking. But in six months, we never met anybody who queried this chatbot. One day, I saw a child playing with an output the size of a college syllabus. Chatbot had been throwing them away. Do you know why? <laughs> I have no idea where this is going. It's because Walby. Because he thought it was good sport because some models aren't looking for anything logical, like utility. And they can't <laughs> be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some models just want to learn. <laughs> yeah, they do just want to learn. I don't know if you know that's a popular meme kind of going on in the valley right now, or is that just a joke that you came up with? <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of the meme discourse okay. around it. Okay, yeah, the meme is that the models just want to learn, so everything's really easy. And welcome to the retort. I think we'll kind of bring two different energies today. I'm fired up about GPU nonsense. And Tom's a little concerned, so I might do some ranting. And then Tom will actually get to the deep questions. Do you have anything you want to say at the open? We're going to talk about the New York Times OpenAI stuff. I suppose you go ahead. Let's um, let's let's start venting. I'm essentially just really annoyed with people that don't have a lot of GPUs not using their GPUs. Well, as you know, where I work, it's just like there's literally we don't have enough GPUs at AI2. That's like a critical weakness. And there's literally just people sitting on GPUs inactively for months at a time. So going on the background of this recording is just oh the little cacophony of discussions i started by essentially sending messages both to the gpu management infra team and my team being like we can't afford to be bad at using gpus this is essentially a psa for anyone listening that works at a company that doesn't have a huge gpu allotment which is you need to be better at using them because all these companies with tons of gpus are also more efficient and it's like you're just gonna lose we're just gonna lose if we don't figure this out so it just kind of feels like a prerequisite to doing anything but the problem is we have freaking grad students and grad students, they're incentivized to abuse any lax policy. And it's like, if I was a grad student and you told me there's no policy, I'm just going to abuse things. But they're like, we want to be nice. So whenever the infra team says anything, they're like, no one listens to the infra team because they don't have to, but the infra team knows what's going on. And all the team leads are too busy to make any decisions. So this is essentially just going to be something that I just need to push to the top and be like, if we don't do this, we're not accomplishing any of our goals, which I actually think will work because the new CEO kind of understands these things. But I just didn't expect it to be as bad as it is. It's just like, this is what happens when you have no policies. This is the downside of being in an academic landscape. There are no rules and it's a free-for-all. And Working at AI these days doesn't, you don't build good things in a free-for-all. You need a little bit of structure. So I'm already fired up. We could transfer that to grim predictions for 2024 <laughs> happy new year everybody yeah 
2024 is here. So, yeah, Nate mentioned I was concerned, maybe a bit weary, maybe a bit a bit anxious, but, you know, that's kind of both how I often feel and I think also kind of warranted <laughs> in the present moment. Uh, I, we were chat. I was chatting about this it's briefly before we started recording. Um, you know, there's this kind of recent bit of news today that, you know, really kind of has nothing to do with AI, but there's also kind of like an isomorphism, I think, with AI that from the wider kind of culture war that I kind of did want to bring up briefly, which is um, kind of part of the big news, I guess, technically yesterday uh, was that the president of Harvard formally resigned uh, in a kind of a delayed reaction to this kind of very controversial congressional testimony that she gave along with two other university presidents. Speaking of just being set out to fail, like whatever, like having watched that, this is the same thing. They're like, they just did such a bad job. There's no winning. This is like, if you don't use your GPUs well, you're just going to lose. <laughs> so it didn't, right. I, I, I didn't really want to, I mean, I didn't mean to get into the full context of the testimony itself. Uh, I did also think it was a disaster. I'm not the only one who thought that it was a disaster. My mother was a university president. So I guess I feel somewhat entitled to make a judgment like that. She would not be caught dead saying anything like that in public or in private. <laughs> thinking it for that matter. Uh, but what struck me about the resignation letter, because, um, you know, there was this wider context where there was this testimony and there was a firestorm around these kind of equivocations that were given by, uh, you know, more than one university president about the kind of rhetoric that has been used and arguably tolerated on campuses around, um, you know, a kind of, Anti, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic slurs, uh, you know, calls for the removal of the Jewish people, yada, yada, yada. Um, and what's interesting in, in the case of the president of Harvard is that this kind of has bled into this kind of larger um, controversy around, I guess, her academic record and her possibly having plagiarized certain passages of her thesis and also some of her publications. So prior to being made president of Harvard, uh, she had this you know, kind of very uh, successful academic career. Uh, and it turns out upon further review uh, that some of her writings have been, I think the word that's been used is a bit sloppy around not adequately citing things that she has Doesn't actually done. everyone do that? Like, like well, especially when you're early on, it's like, you just like get the so job this is, done. Again, <laughs> so I want, I want to clarify why I'm bringing this up because I'm not just, I'm not looking to stoke any kind of fire or even like attack either this person or even anybody who is involved in the matter, because that that's actually my point is that I was struck in, as I went into the details of this, like uh, it, it couldn't help but prompt reflection from me about like the practice of research uh, such as it is in AI, uh, academic and otherwise, um, you know, the fact that, and we've kind of played with this a little bit in previous episodes, like standards of peer review, are complicated, I'll just say, in AI. Uh, they kind of seem to straddle norms on Twitter on the one hand, and then just sort of like uploading things to archive when you feel like you're ready to do so on the other. Um, neither of which really counts as, you know, peer review in the traditional, let's just say 20th century, late, mid to late 20th century sense of that term, right? Uh, but this is just sort of the world that we navigate. And so there's a whole bunch of downstream effects of that related to, you know, are we as careful as we 
are expected to be or could be about how we cite things or how we don't cite things or how we take influence from other people. Um, everything gets kind of sucked up into the jet turbine engines of like your Twitter profile or, or whatever platform you have. Um, and we're not as, we're not as, uh, what's the word punctilious, <laughs> uh, about, about attribution as maybe a lot of us should be. Anyway, this person got called out on it and it kind of started to steamroll. Uh, of course, I don't know the details here, but she finally did resign. Uh, formally, this letter was released yesterday. And on top of which, the kind of cherry on top for me was, you know, reading, because I read the letter. And there's a passage here uh, where she says, and it is, it is kind of moving, but the language later in this paragraph is what struck me. So she starts off saying, I believe in the people of Harvard because I see in you the possibility and the promise of a better future. These last weeks have helped make clear the work we need to do to build that future. And then she writes, to, to combat bias and hate in all its forms, to create a learning environment in which we respect each other's dignity and treat one another with compassion and to affirm our enduring commitment to open inquiry and free expression in the pursuit of truth. I believe we have within us all that we need to heal from this period of tension and division and to emerge stronger. I'd hoped with, with all my heart to lead us on a journey in partnership with all of you. And then it kind of continues. So what, what struck me about that language this is very much me talking here is that it both like it's in a sense, I agree of course with like a lot of these words, but in another sense, it's, it's this very particular kind of semantics of like very abstract value claims and obligations or commitments to removing things like bias, which like it's, it's not remotely clear to me in practice, often even what these commitments mean. And what struck me in reading that specific portion was I could have copy pasted that entire, like better part of that paragraph, posted on Twitter and passed it off as like a hot take in AI ethics. Like on any given day, you would just see like hundreds of posts to this effect of like, we're all working towards the civilizational commitment to remove all forms of inaccuracy and, and systemic prejudice and AI is the frontier of this. And so I'm bringing this up just because um, I think we're just now at a point, and I think 2024 is not going to make this any easier, where most of the kind of ethical, political, institutional controversies in our world, the, the world of AI, are directly isomorphic with this kind of larger zeitgeist Did of the culture war. Did you read No Opinions piece from today or yesterday? Uh, I definitely... Well, go ahead. I think like I towards did. A shallower, toward a shallower future. It's kind of like... It's, I forgot it, I that was the, the title. The point of the thing is about how like most of the arc of technology is motivated by removing hardship. And it's like kind of points to... Like, this might just be what's left. It's the type of thing that it points to i mean that's a great that's a great article we should link to it mm. and it's just like yeah it's yeah i mean it, this is also i don't know if i've said this yet kind of on the pod but this is sort of what's always both attracted me and repulsed me about the issues in ai you know that when i made the decision many years ago now to um designed my own interdisciplinary degree, uh, doctorate degree, terminal degree. That felt very risky 
to do. Like it basically violates every academic norm of like you you aren't in a discipline. You have to be disciplined. You have to toe the line. You have to learn the methods. You have to cite the right works. You have to you have to obey and follow your committee and and the established hierarchy of what is taken to be expertise. But it was so obvious to me, I guess, even then that all of these different questions about society, about politics, about ethics, about culture, about uh, the good, we're just going to get sucked into this fan of whatever criteria were used to optimize uh, uh, at the time a convolutional neural net or you know, in deep learning. I just was like, basically everything is just going to come to a head here. And so it doesn't matter. Like it just, there were our semantics around uh, all the different shades of meaning that different disciplines have kind of used to kind of populate and make sense and cut corners and equivocate and, and sharpen their knives are just getting leveled in the face of the issues in our world. And I'm not really sure concretely what to do about that. I don't want this podcast to just turn into a politics podcast <laughs> um, or some kind of like, just, hey, here's what happened in the world this week that I think is interesting. Let's just talk about it kind of a thing. But I think implicit in the kind of idea that AI is alchemy is this idea that what's happening in AI is th these claims to be birthing a different kind of world, a different way of being either in ourselves or through these machines, which may or may not be sentient. And that's a whole axis of debate, of course. But I don't think this issue is going to go away. I think this kind of, I keep calling it this isomorphism between what you see in the headlines and what plays out in AI. I think it's just going to uh, continue. And I guess this is just me articulating a commitment that in this podcast, I'm going to approach that with a spirit of magnanimity as much as possible. So I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to ignore the parallels. I also will not indulge them. And wherever possible, I will look for a way to, for me, to address them and make sense of them with a generosity of spirit to all parties involved. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think we need to do. That's kind of, I've, I've wrote a blog post today that essentially said that. It was like, we did 2023 and it was a little bumpy for people because people didn't realize it was going to just be a total chaos sprint marathon. But now we know that's just life because AI is becoming as big as the internet and the internet is pretty much touches all of society. And it's like, if that's going to be the case, like we, we just know that 2024 will be like that. And there are so many different sub tribes now. It's pretty funny. Like I could list them off. It's like the, you got the, AI doomers, which I think is different from like the AGI Jesus people, which is different from the EAC people, which is the acceleration open source. And then there's like, they're, they're really like the Mark and Dreesen Marxist army. <laughs> and then there's other sub things that people are trying to say, like a techno pragmatist or AI optimist. And I'm like, I don't really affiliate with any of these. So I'm kind of like, I'm the E slash science group, which is just people that want to understand things and try to drive decision-making based on understanding and just have like a principled life. It's like the e, uh, e scientist slash um, stoicism <laughs> group, but mm. I have all of like three or four people that I feel like would sign on to that. So maybe the splintering so to such a great extent is a good opportunity for people to be like, look, like 
everyone's got a team. We just need to understand that like they're just people and they probably want AI to do good for the world too. Some people want to make more money than others, but I don't think the people that want to make money are normally that motivated. And it's just like, we people have the same goal at the end of the day. It's just like the methods that change and the fairness team, the AI ethics team. I didn't mention them. It's interesting. I'm reading a book right now called a spirit of trust by this philosopher. Brandon came out a few years ago. And it's really one of these kind of magisterial philosophical tomes. It's kind of a Brandon's rereading of Hegel, which this, we're not going to get <laughs> that means that, that means something. That sentence means something to like one percent of our listeners. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get to we'll get to like Hegelian dialectics in a future episode. <laughs> but but I think as I as I read through that argument, a lot of it does reduce to the fact that we're all navigating the world under conditions of uncertainty. We all have the meanings that we each attach to the world as we each experience it even as we know that the terms of our experience are conditioned on how that world is represented to each of us and not as it actually is in some objective sense. And yet we are in a situation, whether that's the human condition or 2024 or whatever, where you kind your calling is to kind of act out of a kind of pragmatic faith that if you are willing to try in good faith to make yourself understandable, that you can be understandable to other people. And I think you have to be willing to take that. It is a leap of faith, I think, because then you end up, truth makes strange bedfellows, or pragmatics does, maybe. You might find yourself agreeing with people that you didn't want to and disagreeing with people that you, you assumed were in your corner. And it's the thing is, your assumptions are just that, and your perceptions are just that. But faith stands, I think, deeper, I think. And people respond to sincerity. I've found that. I've found myself making allies with people that even I was skeptical I would be able to because people can hear sincerity beneath whatever sentence-level issues they may have with your phrasing. And that's... I'm going to try and channel that spirit into these conversations as much as possible because it's going to feel increasingly artificial if we just sort of ignore the state of the world as we continue to discuss the state of AI. Yeah, I agree. I, I was reflecting over break and that was my blog post that was out on the day that I record this. It's just me being fired up about trying to do open science of language models because there's so much opportunity to understand these things that are coming to define the internet. And it's just like, it's not, I knew it wasn't going to be a piece that like defines my writing, but it's just nice to put your like emotional worldview out there and be like, this is what I believe and why I believe it. And I, I would say it's the most focused I've been on something since when I was rowing in college, which mm. is just like a full cultish sport team environment where you just, everyone's just all in like the, the expectation you're there every day. You can't miss any practice. There's no excuses. And it's just like, breeds a level of focus that is so high that there's definitely a lot of people in AI like that right now. And I just have a lot of respect for anyone that's willing to do that. It's, it's, it's hard. It's vulnerable because you're just putting so much on the line. Like all of your work outputs feel like they're an attachment of yourself, which is a brutal place to live emotionally, especially when you can get scooped on a two months of work. Someone does 
a week ahead of you and stuff like that. Like I just res- like respect people for playing in this, when the stakes are like they are. I mean, there's that story from the there's that story from the Bible, right? Uh, Jonah's commanded by God to preach to Nineveh, and because Nineveh is like full of sinners, and God's like, you should tell them. And Jonah's <laughs> like, I don't think that's going to go over well. And God's like, yeah, but, you know, that's like my whole thing is that like, you know, you're like a prophet or whatever. And he's like, no, screw that. <laughs> he like gets on a boat and he like runs away. He just straight up runs away and he goes into the into the, the sea. And God's like, no, you, you don't know. You can't do that. And so he sends a whale, you know, whale swallows Jonah. Uh, Jonah spends, I believe it's three days in the belly of the whale. And he's like, shit. And you have to, like, three days. Four 72 nine. hours. That's a long time. Talk about level of focus. <laughs> like, he's completely immersed in his own vulnerability in that moment, right? His his world is his vulnerability. He's reduced to that. And I have to imagine when he's, I mean, of course, he expresses contrition and he prays to God and says, okay, I will, I will follow. Wherever you command me to go, I will follow. The whale vomits him up on shore. Also a very funny image that I won't get into. I just think that's funny. <laughs> anyway, the whale vomits him up on shore. He goes back to Nineveh and just starts preaching. And there's that line or whatever. Where he's like, he starts at one end of Nineveh and by the other end of it, you know, like half the city was just sort of listening to him. And I have to imagine that that's not really because of like what he said or because it was really that like rhetorically impressive this was because he looked like somebody who just been inside of a whale for three days. <laughs> but, but I think that I think that's the point, though, is that when when you're if you're able to reverse that polarity and just kind of give up, if you're if you show that you're able to give up. Claim to status, claim to the kind of armor of being protected in your whatever your affiliation is, or whatever your degrees are or whatever you would and you just name what it is that you care about and what you're committed to and how that's reflected in what you're going to do and then do it. It is one of those paradoxes that the world does, I think, tend to meet you more than halfway when you do that. Yeah, I agree. It's a good thing for us to try to do. It's fun to be aligned on that with people. Do you want to talk about the New York Times? Do you think they're doing this? (laughs) speaking, Speaking of isomorphism, yeah. So... This is the sort of, this happened, I guess, a few days ago now. It was like buried at like technically end of last year, very end of last year. So uh, New York Times sued OpenAI for copyright infringement, I believe is just what they called it. And uh, it seems to rest on two things, right? One is, as they said, that a lot of their, their, their articles, their content, was used to train OpenAI's, you know, large language models, their chatbot, without compensation. Okay, so they didn't didn't basically pay the New York Times to do this, and they're kind of upset about that. And then secondly, and I actually thought this part was also kind of maybe even more interesting, they were also upset because they thought that this made OpenAI it also meant OpenAI was effectively competing with them. That their chatbot, having absorbed enough of their content, might be preferable for lots of people to the New York Times itself. And so not only was it not 
not only did OpenAI not compensate them for using their, their data, but also it was effectively using their own data against them to create a competing service, which is very provocative and kind of weird thing to say, but it's what they, it's what they filed suit on. So we're going to see where this goes. Obviously, this is still completely unresolved. A lot of people seem to think it's going to go to the Supreme Court. It's a weird kind of localized corner of copyright law that could have large legal implications for how we, frankly, I mean, Nate already alluded to this, but basically, like, if chatbots are going to be upstream of what the internet becomes in a few years or 10 years from now, it seems like these sorts of fights matter. I guess this is my take, is that I think this matters because if nothing else, it's going to force the law. It kind of calls the law's bluff on a lot of this stuff to, to kind of actually make explicit. If this is okay, why? Or if it's not okay, why? Or to what degree is it okay? And that's why I think it matters because I think personally... And Nate, you might want to go more into this yourself, but there have been some kind of teardowns of this lawsuit. I have a lot of silly, silly takes, Dad. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, there, I, and we'll we'll get into that. But I, I, I think just my my TLDR on my position is, I think this matters because, unlike last year, I think the chips are kind of starting to be put down now about what do we begin to think is at stake with these models and how they're being trained and what it means for other kinds of services that these new fangled pieces of infrastructure are going to change our relationship with at least the internet, if not the media, if not, you know, lots of other activities. Yeah, I, I agree. That's a good summary. I think there's other contexts that makes it, makes one more able to have the, the cynical take, the, the internet take. Um, or like the pro-internet take, so to say, which is like a, a few weeks before this OpenAI announced that they had partnerships with a bunch of like B-tier, potentially fake news German publications. Like I don't even want to name them, but uh, like there's essentially paying these publications to access news articles. And I think what is probably a reasonable assumption is that they were also in negotiations with New York Times as well for the same same type of thing. And this is the negotiation on what value is attributed to media outlets from the AI orgs. We've seen Facebook and Google go through this. They've removed news from certain companies because Facebook and Google aggregate demand. And it's like, there's a person to go listen to on this stuff is Ben Thompson, really. But like, they have all the demand. So the media people have no power. Like the people go to Facebook and they see news there. So it's beneficial for the news to have their articles there. Like Facebook shouldn't be paying them. And those are the same thing with ChatGPT. It's essentially making the issue big enough that they're hoping the legal system punts and saves media organizations. Otherwise they need to reinvent their business model. And it's already a dying ecosystem. Like compared to how many functional and profitable news organizations there was before the internet, like it's already a culling. Like the New York Times is like the NFL. They're like Taylor Swift. They are so big. Like they so they're so big. They're an anomaly. Like you can't compare the rest of the media media ecosystem to what the New York Times gets from ChatGPT. It's like, what is the Providence Journal or like the Boston Globe gonna do with these things? Like 
those are the players to look at because it also doesn't really matter if everything dies except for the New York Times. It's like, okay, the, the New York Times keeps writing news, but the whole economy of media is dead. So I really think that like part of the lawsuit is trying to escalate, like, should media be protected by law in a way that isn't really fitting into copyright? Because I kind of buy the whole argument. It's like, what, what's different from a language model reading every article and a human reading every article and summarizing it. Like the language model is just better. And there's arguments like, oh, opening eyes encoding the New York Times articles as software that it's distributing to the users. And it's like, no, it's data. It's not the like, they're not encoding it as in the software anywhere. It's just like part of this process where it aggregates them all down and distills them down with billions of other things into part of the software stack. So I kind of reduced to the thinking that they're deciding to punt this issue to the government because they were going to lose otherwise. Uh, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I agree with that. Um, I agree with it probably so strongly that I don't really actually know if there's that much more for me to say like I, I on that point. I also linked to this article in my blog post. I didn't read the whole thing, but there are good articles that essentially say this stuff. I don't like. I, I, I do it. read this yeah. one. Like it, it's saying that. This is the text yeah. in yeah. detail. So, what would I say? So I think again, this is sort of to even boil down some of what Nate was saying. There's all these like power laws that define the media environment, right? So you got, you got the, at the tippy top, maybe you've got the New York Times. Then you've got like thousands of local newspapers that don't even exist anymore, or tens of thousands, maybe maybe even more than that, right? Um, I think the conversation that this it's easy when you see headlines like this and you you think about the like the ramifications of like oh who's going to win or like what is the Supreme Court going to say or whatever. It feels like, okay, this is the end-all be-all of the conversation. When really it's like, what, like, what is the effect of chatbots going to be on the creation of news, right? So if this case is literally just about um, we're the ones who decide what news people consume, not open AI, my response would be, I don't really want either of those two entities to like, yeah we're losing it's a little losing battle for both sides uh, that that this is not if that's the either or although third party like, <laughs> rss speed whatever whatever that means right um and so i think that's this to me i don't really have any well-organized thoughts on this i mean i i if i actually made myself think about it i probably would but the interesting question for me is like there's probably like lots of low-hanging fruit by which generative AI applications could even revivify local news or help us like create business models for news generation and distribution that just weren't possible previously because it's just become so prohibitive. It's, it's become so cheap to just generate content by default that I'm sure there's just lots of interesting ways in which the media ecosystem not in like a you know mob rule Twitter type way, but in a somewhat more structured way. There could be different rules by which I could read you know a number of things about like what's going on in the world that's just not refereed 
by either OpenAI or the New York Times. But that's the that that's where I would like this to go. That's where I want that conversation to be happening. I don't think we can trust the law to solve that issue for us. Um, seems like something entrepreneurs should get on. I don't know how much money there is in that though. Yeah, this is a pretty run-of-the-mill generative AI discussion. It's like the problem then is like it's hard to people like to trust individuals now. Like the creators are where people get most of their information and content from at the smaller scale. And it's like how do those people break through when there's literally just AI generated TikTok accounts that are popular? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have the answers, but I do think that there is opportunity. Like the cost of labor is just so low. Today as a gag, I kind of set up did you ever like you're in sociology, so you might not have had to do this, but did you ever try to record like these three minute videos for your research and submit yeah. them to a conference? Like, well, I, I once I, once I, once I joined AI, I did, yeah, that's just ridiculous. And also, yeah. like the industry events as a grad student, they make you submit a one minute video. So I essentially just I've been working on making my blog have audio and video that's AI generated. So I just made a script that takes Google Slides and literally just narrates them. <laughs> like out of the box I, I wrote the script but you could do it with chat gpt and it's just like i just made a video in like 60 seconds it's like i no longer have to do that <laughs> and it's just like there's all these problems that are just hilarious i think that's a more useful solution because it's like getting around homework that shouldn't be assigned and we just have so many things to learn it's like we can't make any final declar- declarations on what generative ai will or will not do we can't no and there's a danger in a possible case like this depending on how high it climbs which is i guess it's the kind of the cousin of what we saw with the eu which is you get a series of very 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 high level regulations that are trying to get ahead of an issue but in a way that either remains vague and therefore easy to skirt or puts constraints that are kind of not targeted well with respect to the actual issues. And it ends up just causing a lot of headaches. I'm kind of reflecting back on a lot of conversations I've had about GDPR uh, over the years. Um, Now that may or may not happen again with the AI Act. I guess we'll see. Uh, The EU is very active in these conversations. It's a very different approach to oversight regulation than the US has had. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah, it's like a, this whole New York Times silly thing. Like, it, it becoming big is ultimately probably bad. I think it's like there's also a lot of it about how the New York Times was able to get exact copies of its passages out of GPT, Chat GPT, or whatever. And it's just like, yeah. The memorization is an interesting technical problem. Like, as it works now, generally people think that it's like if you see a piece of data more than once, but like not too many times, it just gets memorized. So if you see it like five times, like if, if, if during training it sees a snippet of text like five times or something, it'll get memorized. There's this weird sweet spot with how the language models are trained. And it's just like, yeah, New York Times, you don't have any grounds to comment on like whether or not this model is memorizing something. Like nobody in the technical level really even understands what model memorization is. So using that in a lawsuit, I just find to be totally hilarious. And it was like the Twitter discussions of like, I'll pay $50 to somebody that figures out the, a, a prompt to plug into ChatGPT to get the New York Times co- things out. And supposedly they had to use special prompting to get the memorization. They're probably like telling it to recount 
exactly. It's just like, guys, we are being so silly. Like all of this is not going to work in six months and it's going to be totally different. So what are, what are we doing? Yeah, we'll have to see what happens. I mean, the other thing that was brought up, I think in the tech dirt piece that I thought was a good point is um, the fact that the New York Times itself does not really do a great job with attribution or a very consistent job. Like there's there's a whole bunch of ancillary or secondary or preceding reporting that a given New York Times piece might be relying on. Or another good example of that might be like Wirecutter, which, you know, they do their own tests of the products, right? But they're also drawing from like lots of testimonials that people who've also tried on those products have done and then providing their kind of expert level, like here's our holistic assessment kind of thing. And so the other response is to say, well, New York Times, we'd like to support you in this lawsuit, except you also are kind of guilty of a lot of like the the lack of attribution or compensation that you're accusing OpenAI of. They're just kind of better at it or they're, they're automating something that you just sort of let your reporters have discretion over without compensating them either. So one, one interesting outcost of this might be that the New York Times and maybe by extension, a lot of like traditional media outlets change how they report just to seem more distinctive uh, relative to what chatbots can do. Even if they don't get money out of it, they might just have to start behaving and reporting and compiling and a lot of journalistic norms might shift, not necessarily because that would improve them in some kind of traditional sense, but just because it would distinguish them in this new media environment. Yeah, disrupt them. Continue the disruption. Disruption. <laughs> like, I don't read much New York Times. I don't read any New York Times. I'm skating off of a free Berkeley subscription still. And I don't, like, I very rarely <laughs> I read an article. Sorry. Like, I play the Connections yeah. game. Like, I play Wordle, but, like, I don't Wordle. Really read their yeah. articles. Like, it's nice to be able to skim through and there's breaking news. But, like, I don't think I would pay $15 a month for that. Like, I was going to scan it for free. It's like, they need it's to be actually, disrupted. It's an interesting question. Actually, how do I, if I did the quick composite in my head, where do I all get my news? I do read the New York Times. I often look at it in the morning. I don't I browse it. it. I don't read it. I certainly browse it. I'll read something if it strikes my interest. I literally go there to make sure the world's not ending. And then I proceed with my day. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even clear what like practical utility that would okay the world's ending so then we'll, <laughs> what else would you do you'd probably still complain about I'd gps turn, i'd go to twitter faster if the world is ending <laughs> yeah uh, like, i think a I lot of people good. are in that boat is this is this really nerdy if i admit this i don't know how this will come off i read i use google news like all, on fine. my phone they're probably yeah, good that's fine. That's fine. i mean the other thing at the same side of this we're talking about we wouldn't pay for the new york times a lot of people in ai are canceling their chat gpt subscription it's kind of like the in vogue thing to do to cancel their subscription because gpt4 is just like not quite direct enough and too verbose i still mm. find it very useful for just like getting my brain used going i've been coding more recently it just it's good it's obviously wrong a bunch of the times and it just gets out nonsense sometimes, but like, I can value out of it. It does things. It's cool. It's like, but but it's like the invoke thing to be like, I can use a more specific model that's not as general that does what I need, that like, isn't a little bit misleading. Like the New York Times was misleading. It's just funny that the two communities have similar problems facing them. 
I think the ChatGPT one is overblown, to be fair. I think that's just people kind of trying to be cool. And that's a microcosm of a much larger conversation that we probably won't, like, well, we surely won't resolve here. I eventually sure we can open it up adequately. But this question of, like, you know, when or whether language models are going to become, you know, smaller or something like that, you know, this is this sort of, like, ongoing question. They will. Local, like, local models are going to matter a lot, I think. There's going to be a whole track of development that's like everyone buys a new phone every year. It's essentially going to be like by how much yeah. your GPU, how how much better your computer processors get. There's going to be this like Pareto frontier of models based on the laptop you have and stuff like that, yeah. which is good. It makes a lot of sense, but like it's something that I also mean to dig into at a much deeper level. But what you're describing is sort of more this like hipsterish gesture of like I don't. I would rather use. Uh, this more specialized kind of model uh rather than this larger one just but that just that just strikes me as vibes though which I is to say like, not people want <laughs> to hate real. on open ai is the thing yeah. like gpt4 is still better than most models that people could switch to which is why i don't understand it's like gpt4 turbo like their newest model is definitely way better than anything else that people have access to so i'm like what are you smoking like if you want access to this thing that's obviously better in certain ways than anything else like you have to use it that's why OpenAI makes a billion dollars a year right now. They have the like notably best model. It, it's fragile. If Google actually made Gemini Ultra available in the same way, I think there might be a yeah. big fracture. But like, it's just hipster stuff. Well, I think that ties off the New York Times issue for now. I guess we'll revisit it when there are updates. Yeah, it seems like this week is pretty quiet. I suspect that the releases start going next week do you going. want to talk about the uh just want to learn meme oh it's pretty funny i think the, the visual i always have is from some podcast with the ceo of anthropic dario modi uh, i'm dario a i don't know how to pronounce his last name yeah i don't know either but like he just said it in such an endearing way in this podcast with video so i can just see his little voice it's like they just want to learn <laughs> and it's just the idea that like there could be something deeper about how like data is the data format is intrinsic to the way we're doing models and it's just like is easy to get signal out of them but it's just why it's a crazy year in ai right now it's like if you focus on something it's easy to get performance out of it in that direction if you're focused and willing to do some work and that just means there's a lot of progress to be made to just reward people to do it it's just really fun to say i just think it's a fun saying how does he say it i've not seen oh i don't it, like, like the, the intonation doesn't matter it's just a fun meme like they just want to learn like it's just fun like these little the little cute language models that we shouldn't anthropomorphize because they're going to be conscious sentient beings one day so like yeah. oh no what are we going to do we said they wanted to learn and now they do it's like it's fine we're not anywhere close to that point like let's, let's just have a good time there's probably something i i suspect this is maybe a lukewarm take. I suspect that there's going to be something deeper that we're eventually going to get better intuition about for where that is coming from. Because I suspect that it, it matters somehow. That there's maybe something about the a way in which we communicate with each other in text or otherwise that has this kind of implicit, there's an implicit potential for like a curriculum in it that makes it so that like once you just suck up enough of it, you're just able to suck up more and more of it. That there's just something compositional about it that we don't even understand. 
begins some like new horizon or some new frontier of like linguistics that we just haven't even been aware of because there's no the, this amount of information was not able to be uh, compiled in the same time before. I don't really agree, but I would find it very interesting if I was wrong. I think it's just like you throw a lot of compute at a really complex probability distribution and you could actually kind of get some signal out of it. It's just like... So that's syntax versus semantics, I guess, is where... Yeah. To be continued on that front. Yeah. Uh, Anything else going on? Do you have any New Year's resolutions? Kind of. I don't really call them that, but I'm trying to just be less sucked up into the noise. Like, basic things like meditate and, like, just do more actually building things and just not converse as much just fine not a big things try to be happy and continue the path do you have any uh i don't i have commitments i think i already named them earlier in this episode kind of the way i'm gonna handle this impending shitstorm of news that i think is going to define the year and how i'm gonna process that not dissociate from it but integrate it in a way that strikes me as having like some kind of integrity uh, I also should meditate more than I do but that's not new <laughs> it's just yeah. a common denominator yeah I do like TM a lot it's interesting you and I have never actually like compared notes on this but yeah I, I find TM to be much better than other approaches for me because I need to have like the mantra as I kind of use it to lose it kind of object that's very helpful yeah, I've never really tried the transcendental. I've always been in the mindfulness thing. The study of the mind, the nerd, the nerd approach. Maybe it's more of an engineer approach, I don't really know. I feel like we've had this discussion before. It's good to just have people sit down and be intentional. Most of my views around these things just simplifies as time goes on. It's like fairly obvious. It's like move your body, do things that make you not stressed. Be happy. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good tie-off for this episode, the first one of this new year. Yeah, we're going to bully our listeners into meditating. (laughs) Bully them into being intentional. Yeah. Be more intentional or else. Yeah, or else we make this a private podcast. (laughs) All right. Yeah. (laughs) Good to see you. Sounds good. Good to see you. Yeah, we also haven't spoken really since the new year, so this is also what this was. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. Bye, everybody. Bye for now.